let's start talking about some important people from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, there's a couple of certain incidents I want to get into, but let's let's go over some people first. Who do you feel? Uh, do you feel the lady in grey? Do you feel Eddie Rickenbacker? Uh, do you feel the flying housewife? I... Uh, okay, so you did bring up the lady in grey earlier, so let's start with that. As much as I am biased towards anyone with the last name Rickenbacker. Now, I did talk somewhat earlier about the uh, Camp Chase. Uh, now, Camp Chase was founded, organized in 1861 uh, for recruitment and training for the Union Army, named after Salmon Salmon P. Chase. What's the first name? How do you say it? <laughs> I've never salmon, heard of the right? first name, so I don't know. Like, is it, for, I mean, is it spelled the same way as Salmon? <laughs> It is fair, it's not the same way as salmon, but I think I'm All influenced right, by, like... Then, well, this man is named after a fish. Good for him. It's a delicious fish. Go, go ahead. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm overly influenced by Salman Rushdie's existence and prominence in my head more than anyone whose first name is Salmon. Isn't, yeah, isn't Salman Rushdie, like, M-A-N? Yeah, exactly. But, he, yeah, it's a different so, name. Okay, yeah. But seeing the name Salmon makes me think... Actually, now I'm looking at it, Salmon Chase is a pretty great name. It's a pretty oh, fantastic absolutely. name. And he was Secretary of the Treasury under Lincoln and former Governor of Ohio. So, fuck yes, Hammond Chase. Maybe he was not He was probably a piece of shit being a 19th century politician, but good name. Good name. He sounds like Don't a need... fucking Thomas Pynchon <laughs> character. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, but he he's not important, uh, I don't think. I'll look into him. But um, the important thing is Camp Chase. So it was erected to train soldiers, uh, but it became reorganized as a prisoner of war camp, um, which was uh, 160 buildings housing both Southern soldiers and civilians loyal to the Confederacy. And its highest point, it contained 8,000 prisoners, and it was fairly miserable because the Union was caring more about, for somewhat understandable reasons, feeding and training new recruits rather than the prisoners. And the prisoners were... Starving and dying of disease in an overcrowded prison. Um, the worst outbreak being in the winter of 1863-1864 when smallpox, smallpox killed 500 men in a month. It was pretty grim. Okay, okay. So I did just look into Mr. Chase here. And actually, oh, yes. this guy's fucking badass. Um, oh, right. Apparently, he was a huge anti-slavery activist. And in fact, oh, yeah. uh, he was seeking the Republican nomination for president in the 1860 election, but they chose Abraham Lincoln instead because he was comparatively moderate. Oh, shit. Imagine the fucking timeline. Imagine President Chase. President Chase president is a fantastic... Salmon Chase. Salmon Portland name. Chase. I fucked this timeline. <laughs> Let's go to that one. <laughs> so, again... He was such a radical abolitionist, they went with Lincoln instead. Wow, okay. And apparently he is on the $10,000 gold certificate. So good for him. That's something? Um, what the hell is a $10,000 gold certificate? <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it's if you buy gold that's under like the possession of the United States, like Fort Knox, then they give you certificates for it. You know, I'm sure that... The many of our listeners who are into investing in gold and have very strong opinions on the Federal Reserve in a place named Jekyll Island probably know a lot about this guy already and are like, yeah, 
Sam in Portland Chase. I have a lot of his picture in a drawer somewhere that I haven't touched in 15 years. That's 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 amazing. All right, so it makes it even more interesting that so many Confederate Confederate prisoners died at Camp Chase, considering who it was named after. I don't... Actually, apparently, the $10,000 bill is the largest denomination of U.S. currency to publicly circulate. And it's got salmon chase on it? Oh, no, that's the same one. Chase on it. Fucking hell, that's amazing. So, originally, they were... The dead uh, were buried in one of Columbus's city cemeteries, but... When the prison established its own cemetery in 1863, those bodies were removed and interred at the Camp Chase Cemetery. And there they were. There they rested. Now, there, what happened was in the late 1800s, rumors began to fly around um, about a woman who dared to deliver flowers to the graves of formerly dead, uh, for, formerly, not formerly dead, holy shit, uh, formerly enemy Confederate soldiers. Um, she would travel in a closed carriage and covered herself in a veil. Um, and she initially, she would like, because it was like a time, it was the post-Civil War and it was like the Union won. people, you know, it was, it was culturally probably, it was weird at the time, right? So she, at first she was worried about being caught. Uh, and she would throw the flowers over the wall, but she would go, became more and more bold and she started laying uh, flowers on the grave and so initially people thought okay this must be a widow or a sweetheart or something like that but this woman whose name was Louisiana Ransburg Briggs wasn't any of those things she was born in Missouri in New Madrid Missouri uh, but she was named after her mother's native state Louisiana and she was a confederate uh, growing up um that was the thing you could be. Yep. Now, Missouri's not in the south, is it? Where's Missouri? Where's Missouri? Missouri's north, right? I, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's north, and I think it was, um, it, it's like, you know, it's the center of the eastern United States, pretty much. I actually don't know if it was on the, which side the Mason-Dixon line it was on. Missouri Confederate? Um, it was. Okay, it was. It was not. It was claimed. Wait. But it oh, was made part okay. of the Union. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it was it was admitted into the Confederacy. So okay, there you go. Interesting. So yeah, apparently it was complicated. Uh, One hundred nine thousand men fought for the Union from Missouri, and thirty thousand men fought for the Confederacy. Interesting. That adds more interest to it. All right. So now her family they had a plantation on the Mississippi River, which was captured by the Union, and um, her father sent her away. To live with other family members in Ohio. Now she was not happy to leave Missouri, and she she ended up at this at an all-female college called uh, Ohio Wesleyan, uh, which is now a name of university. And she avoided sitting next to or near her new Yankee classmates. And she felt it was disgraceful that the girls were doing washing and things for themselves because she grew up with slaves mm. to the extent that. Now that her black ma had gone, she didn't even know how to comb her own hair. So, she's an odd sort of duck, uh, Confederate boo. Probably very young when all this is happening. So, she's in high school when the Civil War is going on, and she just doesn't give it up. 
<laughs> she's just like, no, I will be a confederate forever. So she would piss off her classmates by like saying pro-confederate things. And she got married to a local politician and landowner. Uh, she got married when she was only 17 to this local politician, which is typical um, okay. of the time period. Yeah, confirm. This was not like, oh, young man getting his foot in the door and the political business. This is, this guy's an already established local politician, right? Yeah, he was, well, he was born in 1833. Well, probably wasn't hugely older than her. But he was like, yeah, he'd be in his 30s and she was 17. So it's still kind of creepy, but not that unusual for the time period. So she discovered the Camp Chase Cemetery and she basically, the reason why she donned the veil was um, because she didn't want to uh, mess with her, her husband's reputation as a local politician, so she became the veiled lady of Camp Chase. And do you know when she died? You mentioned that she was died. She died like very old, right? She died on February twenty sixth, nineteen fifty, at the age of one hundred, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Um, oh, you know, crazy. now how she died is that she had, <laughs> she persuaded her niece to smuggle some brandy into her room at Mount Carmel Hospital and choked on it and died. <laughs> come on, that's, that's, that's a pretty amusing word, like, come on! <laughs> oh my god, this is union brandy! <laughs> there is some symbolism there too, that's very powerful. Anyway... Uh, the point is um, that after that, after she died, the um, people began to see her ghost crying and um, wailing and wandering through the Camp Chase Cemetery. And people, apparently people don't see her as much now, but I would think that she's still there, this revenant. Like, what, what a life for a confederate boo who dies in brandy at the age of 100 just to remain at Camp Chase. There's, there's a lot going on there. There's a hell of a lot going on. I mean, I guess leave it to someone really in the Confederacy to hold out for something long past it's when someone should be holding out for it. I could probably word that in a pithier way, but nothing's coming to mind. I mean, I would give it... It's, it's sort of a different sort of story from your your um, Daughters of the Confederacy, that sort of thing. Yeah. She seems to be a very much a... Uh, very. She almost I mean, sounds like girl, an adept. Like the Confederate boo thing sounds appropriate. Also, just a, yeah. kind of like a fangirl, but for the Confederacy, like you know, someone holding on to a false memory of their childhood far past a healthy point of adulthood. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And especially when she was so young, when it was all done and dusted, it it raises some questions. So, what was this other guy? Oh, Eddie Rickenbacker. He was yeah. a flying ace. Nice. A flying ace of World War One. Um, who was rumored to have fought the Red Baron. Yes. Let me let me just get out my uh, notes on him. I'm strongly opposed to barons, especially communist ones. Ahem. That was a magnificent <laughs> awkward pause. Thank you for that, Thompson. <laughs> let's just let's just move on. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. So Edward Rickenbacker was born as Edward Reichenbacher. Uh, he was the son of German-speaking Swiss immigrants who had settled in Columbus, mm. Ohio. 
And um, so he worked in various jobs growing up, including a brewery, a brewery, and a cemetery monument firm, and a bowling alley. Okay. How does the bowling alley fit into all this? I, I don't know, but the fact that it's there with these other two, oh, it's just yeah. something. Yeah, I mean, come on. These things come in threes. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So he was mechanically inclined. Uh, he paid, attained an apprenticeship at Pennsylvania Railroad's uh, machine shops uh, in the local area. Oh, and when was he alive, just to confirm? Uh, he was born 1890. Okay, so like early 20th century. He, his father died at the age of 12, so 1902. Lying about his age, Rickenbacker soon found employment in the glass industry before moving on to a position with the Buckeye Steel Casting Company. God fucking damn it! <laughs> it's all coming together! Oh shit! <laughs> But then he saw he worked at a brewery, then a bowling alley. Obviously, it's not named Buckeye because it's in Ohio. That's too easy. No, no, it's too easy. Now he became a auto racer. He loved his automobiles because you know at the time he uh, that was a, that was what kids yeah. want to do. You know, uh, he got a job at the Freya Miller Air Cooled Car Company and began to race his employer's cars in 1910 at the age of about 20, I guess 1920. Um, he earned the nickname Fast Eddie, participated in the inaugural Indianapolis 500 in 1911, and he raced multiple years after that, and he worked in lots Fast of different Eddie? things. Fast Eddie. I think there's a guy with that name that owes me $200. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure, um, it's, a, it was a, it's a shitty 24-hour restaurant in Australia, Fast Eddie's. I don't know if it exists elsewhere. Um, what was named after this guy? So he was racing up until every year. Well, 1912, 1914, 1915, 1916. Then, 1917, United States enters World War I. He originally offered to form a fighter squadron of race car drivers, which is fantastic. Fucking nice. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. A... Imagine that. All right. But he was recruited to be the personal driver for General John J. Pershing. And that's when he anglicized his last name. That's pretty impressive. That city, General Pershing was very, uh, he was the commander of the American Expeditionary Force. That's huge. That is an incredibly American life. Yeah, it, it is. It is. In, in a good way. For what? American yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I like, I like it. Uh, so he was working at Pershing's driver, but he was really interested in uh, aviation. But he didn't have a college education. So at the, at the time... It was very snobbish in the in the in the in the well, flying corps. Well, he also corps. probably legit overcame some discrimination too. You said he came from like a German background, right? Yeah, German background during World War One. Yeah. Oh yeah, he definitely would have had some pushback. Ah, uh, Swiss Swiss German, but still, but still. Sure. Uh, and he was he was second generation. He was born in Ohio, so. Yeah, but I'm uh, saying, like especially if he has a. If he has a German last name like that, there would have been some... Uh, he would have definitely gotten some shit for that. Especially in that period in America um, yeah. before they entered World War One, when there was just a lot more German. There were like German newspapers everywhere and lots more German spoken in various parts of the country. Like, that all disappeared. Yeah, there's a lot of Germophobia. Well, I don't think ger Germophobia is a different thing. Uh, I guess Teutonphobia would be the Teutonophobia. way to put it, I guess. Teutonophobia? <laughs> What's 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 fear in German again? I presume it's something very long. And, no, it's uh, like I'm I'm just, I'm just gonna call it the Deutsch Angst. There you go. 
That's how German words are made, aren't they? <laughs> exactly. You just, just piece things together. A German word's just a sentence. Nest inside a larger That's sentence. That's right. <laughs> Fuck spaces. Fuck spaces. But yeah, race car driver to fighter pilot. I'm liking this guy. Yeah, and he, yeah, he did become a fighter pilot. He fought to become a fighter pilot, um, doing various trainings, aero gunnery, and things like that. And he flew his first mission in 1918. And he became the most celebrated aviator in America at the time, having downed 17 enemy fighters, four reconnaissance aircraft, and five balloons. He was he uh, received a Distinguished Service Cross, a record eight time, as well as the French Croix de Guerre and Legion of Honor. Yeah, he he was a big guy. He was a he wrote his memoirs entitled "Fighting the Flying Circus." Uh, that was the Red Baron. Is that what he pretty much what he got up to after the war? Then just wrote, wrote his uh, memoirs. Well, he was still very young. He was still in his late twenties. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. He went back. He married. You know, he was a pretty hand. He was a pretty uh, famous guy. Racing cars. Mark. Oh, he founded Rickenbacker Motors. <laughs> that's pretty great. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. They were driven out of business. But they had they did all this racing, four wheel braking. They, they introduced that, and they were big race car drivers. He purchased the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, in 1927. He operated the track until 1941 and closed it when World War II began. He bought Eastern Airlines in 1938. He negotiated with the federal government to purchase airmail routes. The guy's ahead of his time. <laughs> shit. This guy's trying to be Jeff Bezos 100 years early. Yeah. Yeah. In 1941, in February 26, 1941, he was nearly killed when an Eastern DC-3 crashed outside Atlanta. Uh, he suffered numerous broken bones, a paralyzed hand, and an expelled left eye. <laughs> but he made a full recovery. Nice. Yeah. And he was uh, involved in a sort of a consultant capacity in uh, World War II. Uh, visiting various bases at the request of the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. And he was dispatched to the Pacific, where he got into a big fight with Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> Good. Over what? He got angry that for negative comments that MacArthur had made about the Roosevelt administration, which is so difficult. I think what this guy is trying to do, probably, maybe this is a bit obvious, but make a personal plane-focused form of viaturgy. Or perhaps Wait transition viaturgy to something flight-focused? It's more than that. Okay. In October 1942, the B-17 Flying Fortress, carrying Rickenbacker, went down in the Pacific. Oh. Rickenbacker was adrift for 24 days until they oh. were spotted by a U.S. Navy Kingfisher near Nukafetau, which I, I think I know what it is. Recovering from sunburn, dehydration, and near starvation, he completed his mission before returning home. Oh my god. He's got a fucking crazy life. Shit. I, you know, he started as a race car driver. That makes sense. He, then Rickenbacker requested permission to travel to the Soviet Union to aid with their American-built aircraft, where he became respected by the Soviet military. Holy <laughs> and made recommendations. Oh my god. Oh, this guy's fantastic. When was this that um, he'd be in the, in the Soviet Union? The trip is best remembered for his error in alerting the Soviets to the secret B-29 Super Fortress project. What the fuck? Oh this God. guy. Oh, my God. Um, 
Yep, uh, he remained in charge of Eastern until 1959 when he was deposed, but he remained as chairman of the board, uh, the airlines, and um, yeah, he died of a stroke in 1973. Uh, that's a fairly God, old imagine age. having this kind of life. <laughs> Holy shit. Yep. Yep. And wow. now, that, so he is like, this is America. <laughs> this, this, is, this fits into this like... Is, yeah, wow. <laughs> This really fits into a lot of the uh, sort of themes that seem to be keep popping up about uh, how Columbus, Ohio seems to represent a lot of very American things. And his childhood home is here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, sure. with fly, with a um, with all these things. And also, there is a local restaurant um, named after him near the airport called the 90, 94th Aero Squadron Restaurant, which seems kind of minor, but that's got to be a link to it. So yeah, Eddie Rickenbacker, big man out of Columbus, kind of important. Well, now that is that is how you anchor your spirit into the flesh of America. You have a <laughs> themed restaurant made of course, in your image. Of course, of course. With the World War II plans, plane sitting out the front. Uh, right near the airport. I mean, what the hell? What do you? What do you? What do you? What do you want? I would pay a lot for like a pretty shitty burger if I could eat that burger in like a World War Two plane cockpit. I'm not sure that's allowed, unless you probably pay. not. But I'm saying you know there's a niche there that can be exploited. So yeah, this Rickenbacker guy definitely had a lot going on. I'm you know I'm not even sure if he was. A, I doubt this guy's involved in the underground. Maybe channeling some sort of uh, avatar path. He's too- He's too busy. <laughs> I don't think he's involved. He's way too busy. <laughs> People in the underground aren't this successful. Like, they don't they don't accomplish this much. Right. A couple of these, sure. But you aren't in the underground and also run, like, a successful, like, car company. Those are just kind of mutually and, exclusive lifestyles. And an airline. And and an okay, no, they, I, I've heard I've heard some rumors about Alaska, but and surviving two plane crashes, one into the ground and one into the sea. I mean, come on. I have heard that there have been a couple attempts to replace the flying woman, the flying man. Well, that's the interesting thing because the flying housewife was a title given to this woman by the media during her her career or her um. Her circumnavigation of the world. But my conspiracy theory regarding this is that it, the, the name The Flying Housewife, this is not something that she chose herself. It was something that was imposed upon her. So I believe that that was a de- deliberate or it may possibly like collective unconscious deliberate effort to reduce her from the status of flying woman, either by the archetype, either by Amelia Earhart herself or by forces on the ground, you know, forces on Earth. Um, now, who she was in her real life was, she was named Geraldine Jerry Fredericks Mock. And she was pretty cool. She was, she had grown up um, with a passion for flying, and she uh, married a, a pilot, and she also had a pilot's license. And basically, up until she was in her 30s, she sort of had, like, the idea that she'd like to, you know, fly around the world, which had not been attempted since uh, Amelia Earhart. She was the first woman to fly around the world. In the spring of 1964, in a single-engine four-seater Cessna 180, uh, she went around the world in 29 days. Like, many years after 
Amelia Earhart's attempt, because after Amelia Earhart, well, ascended, as we know, but in the in the words, in the idea of the uh, mundane historical record, she disappeared. Uh, but since that disappearance, um, no woman had tried that. Possibly, the fact that World War Two was in between did play a big role. Yeah, that would that. make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and then like, the Cold War, and like there were there were yeah. there were good reasons why. Um, no woman had tried a circumnavigation, but basically, uh, Jerry Mock was talking to her husband, and basically, she kept saying, "Like, oh, I would like to go on a great big flying adventure one day." It's like one of those things where people always talk about, like, one day I'm going to do this amazing thing. And so she, basically, her husband at some point said, "Just, just was just like, just go and do it then." And so she did. She spent 18 months preparing for a round-the-world trip. She, uh, her husband bought a half share in a Cessna, uh, which was named the Spirit of Columbus, based on the Charles Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis, which is, again, interesting symbology there. Did she just learn to fly? To no, 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 no. She, okay. no, 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 no. She, she, she was, like, she, before that she had, um, flown before, she, well, she got her pilot's license at 33, uh, which was before this, and she flew around when she could afford it. Uh, and she managed um, some general aviation terminals, and her husband right. was a was a full time pilot. So she, it wasn't she, she didn't just go earn, a, earn a license for this. Like she'd always had an interest in flight, uh, but it took a while for her to. It was you know it's not it's not easy for a woman in the nineteen fifties to sixties to become a pilot. Yeah, yeah. So she, uh, yeah, she filed her intentions to do the flight with the National Aeronautic Association. She secured a bunch of visas. Um, she got a bunch of sponsorships and supporters. Cessna did not support her, but the Columbus Dispatch newspaper did. And this might have been where the trouble started regarding the, uh, the fact that she was portrayed in the media as flying housewife. And that was very much um, part of them trying to, like, play down... Like the connection with the flying woman as like you know the independent spirit of Amelia Earhart, they doubled down on this by the media sensation regarding a so-called race between Jerry Mock and another woman named Joan Miriam Smith, who ha- was also planning a round-the-world flight. So the media like basically portrayed the whole thing as these two women are you know struggling over like fighting over this of going around the world. Um, Joan Miriam Smith was was going to follow Amelia Earhart's like route around the world, while um, Jerry Mock had a different route. Uh, I've got her route here. Uh, Jerry uh, Mock, she went to Columbus, to Bermuda, Santa Maria, Casablanca, and then through Libya, Egypt, Karachi, Delhi, and so India, Thailand, uh, Manila, Guam, and then hit um, Wake Island or Wake Island, Honolulu, Oakland, Tucson, El Paso, Bowling Green, and then back to Columbus. That was the route she took around the world, while Joan Miriam Smith was taking a, a route that was much more similar to exactly the same route, actually, as the 1937 flight, flight plan of Amelia Earhart. So, the, one of the, the the most obvious sort of like mundane explanation for this is just that like he sold more newspapers to like to talk about like a race between these two women to be the first woman to circumnavigate the world in an aircraft. The other idea is that it was a ten attempt like by setting these women against each other, it was an attempt to like, you know, weaken the whole the glory of the achievements either by like some kind of misogynistic cabal on earth, some patriarchal cabal on earth, or by Amelia Earhart getting worried about, you know, challenges. 
another idea is that it it, it was actually a, a Godwalker battle because the idea of a Godwalker battle happening in the form of a inter like a, a, a round the world a, a circumnavigation of the world Godwalker battle is kind of an interesting thought. Well. If you're dealing with uh, a Godwalker battle in the Flying Woman, the best way to undermine a competing avatar is to either undermine the flying aspect or the woman aspect, right? Well, that's interesting because it ties into like certain strange things that happened with Jerry Mock's flight um, when it started off, right? So she took off on April uh, on March nineteenth, nineteen sixty four, knowing that the that Joan Miriam Smith was going to be taking off from uh, from San Francisco in the next month. But she was heading first from Columbus to Bermuda. This was going to be a long flight, and it was her first like over water flight ever. So that's that's pretty insane as it is. Like going that far um, on your first over water flight is 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 bold to say the least so what she needed to have with her on her plane was a hundred and a 100 foot trailing antenna in order to catch catch uh, high frequency radio so she could communicate over the atlantic and so as she was flying uh she was already over water she tried to make calls to new york oceanic which was the con uh her overwater contact there was no response. She tried everything she could possibly do to try to fix the radio. There was no response. It was just not doing anything. So she she had to make a choice of what she was going to do. Like she could either go home, she could go turn around, go back to Columbus, or land at like Richmond. But she thought of all the people that were that were waiting that had like seen her off in Columbus, and she thought thought of all the sponsors and all the people who believed in her. And so she just kept going. And she did manage to on the overland VHR. Frequency. She tried to report in one time uh, to, to Norfolk, telling them she had no contact with New York o Oceanic, and she got like a garbled communication back. It, all it said was 38 Charlie Norfolk Radio, and then one word, Hatbox. What the fuck? Why Hatbox? She had no idea why it was Hatbox. So she, but she just kept going. She took the risk, and she landed in Bermuda in crazy fierce winds. There were like 75 knots, hurricane strength winds. She landed there, was stranded for a week, and then she had the radio checked. The quote from her book says uh, that the man, the mechanic looked at, okay, it says, in less than a minute, he sat up and looked at me with a funny expression on his face. Well, I found the problem, and it'll be easy to fix, but I sure don't understand the men who installed the radio. This is because the wire had been d d disconnected at the control head, probably deliberately, but they never figured out who or why. Jesus. <laughs> that's that's really some mystery, right? And that makes, it, makes yeah, me think more like Hatbox is interesting, because Hatboxes are kind of associated with like a certain level of like um, feminine domesticity in that time period, I think. It's, it's very odd, like over the radio like that. Yeah, so it's mysterious. I, I'm and, leaning uh, towards some sort of patriarchal cabal, yeah. Like you brought up earlier. I don't think this is something that the... I like, if nothing else, right, it probably wasn't the flying woman because when she completed her circumnavigation, you know, her flight around the globe, it's not like she ascended, so... I mean, yeah, that's it. Like, I don't think that, they, like, when someone ascends the invisible clergy, they, they become something more and less than human while still retaining their humanity. And the point is, like, they, they, get, they can get cruel and they can get yeah. arbitrary. But I still don't believe that, like, Amelia Earhart would use her influence 
to fuck over a fellow pilot in like that kind of way yes you know? that's the key thing yeah like that just doesn't seem like her style no it doesn't and also i th you would think that she might be interested in keeping it might not have even been a godwalker thing at all it might have been something along the lines of the fact is, the, the flying woman in, this, in the statosphere, Amelia Earhart herself, might have been all in favor of both of these women, Jerry Mock and Joan Merriam Smith, because that they were acting as the flying woman in a way that was close to her version of the archetype. Because generally, you know, archetypes prefer godwalkers to be like of their kind of thing. Because it's, it's because it's easier for a new interpretation to unseat them, so it could have been it could have been a patriarchal cabal, or it could have been another type of flying woman who was trying to ascend in a new way. Because it does mention in this article, it does have a stray mention that um, about Betty Friedan's *The Feminine Mystique* being published in the same year. And it could have been, and I'm like, it's like it's 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 just a little like it's something that the art, the writer put into the article. But it's an interesting thing to add because that would have been that's even more fucked up. The idea that a different type of flying woman was trying to botch these attempts in order to weaken that idea of the archetype, the Amelia Earhart, and replace her. So it could have been either, or it could have been both. Well, the thing that I mean, a lot of people tend to just kind of forget about um, avatars is there's plenty of them around that have no interest in god walking really they're perfectly fine with just you know staying gaining some power from that but not you know trying to press against whoever uh, the current role current god walker is right that's the thing i don't know that it might they may not necessarily have like uh, jerry mock and joan Marion smith may not necessarily have been channeling the God Walker, or if they were, they weren't necessarily yeah. intentionally. Or yeah, they might not be have been conscious of it, but it might have been a thing of you know the symbology of it. It's important. Yeah, yeah, and what's yeah. interesting as well is as she flew around the world, and this whole media fueled race got underway. Um, she she was getting basically harassed by her husband over the over, in telegrams telling her to go faster and faster to make sure that she could win the race like she portrayed his her husband whose name was Russ um, as saying look weather can't be that bad for that long woman you have to fly that's why you got an instrument rating so you can fly through fronts Joan's leaky gas tanks are supposed to be fixed now and the wire services she says she's ready to go on she'll get way ahead remember your sponsors and take a few chances and that I mean that is obviously from a mundane point of view it's just he's getting way too into it and like trying to take over like her thing but it also is suspicious from a like a mystical point of view like why is he getting like because it was his idea and it wasn't such a big deal him getting carried away with the media frenzy is uh, is is believable but it's also a bit suspicious because the what happened to that was like uh, the fact is that she had to go faster than she originally wanted to go uh, because she had plans. She wanted to see the Pyramid of Cheops, but she didn't have time. She couldn't stop to see the Taj Mahal or even overfly it because she didn't have time. She basically had to go faster and faster and faster. So her circumnavigation of the world ended up being wrapped up in this media frenzy of pitting two women against each other while she was being dubbed the Flying Housewife. And in her amazing 
world voyage, she missed a bunch of things that she'd planned to see because her husband was hounding her over the telegram. I mean, that's that's a lot of shit going on, symbolically. Well, you know, also literally, like, also just, like, fuck the pressure on this woman, God. Oh, man. The rough idea is that he, he was, that somehow her husband was trying to sabotage her intentionally so she'd crash and burn as part of some ritual, right? It could have been him who did the radio. I mean, that's, an that's the idea. Yes, but it's not impossible. That's an awesome idea. It's not impossible at all. And he was also a fellow pilot, and they would have been married for quite a while before that. Yeah. I don't know if, like, that's, that's I, may, I, yeah, that's quite the accusation there, Frank, uh, of this man. I believe they, they stayed married. Yeah, they're both dead. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. I do like this little bit. I'm seeing just in the Wikipedia article of hers. When she uh, landed in uh, Saudi Arabia at some point. Oh, yep. Oh, yep. His white cafe-covered head nodded vehemently, and he shouted to the throng that there was no man. There was a rousing ovation. <laughs> that's so good. I also found a... Um... Uh, there's a, a reference in somewhere in a, a blog post that she landed, she accidentally landed at a an Egyptian uh, air military base, an air force base. They pretty much, if it had been like some dude flying in, well, this is what she believes. Uh, if some dude had flown in, they probably would have detained him. But like her landing just confused them so much that they just they were like, okay, Cairo International Airport's over there. You can, you can go after dark. It's fine. Which is which is pretty which is pretty great. There's also like a because she flew over Vietnam while and this was where the war was yeah, going on. Yeah. And she has a quote like somewhere not far away a war was being fought, but from the sky above all looked peaceful. And it's interesting. I'm like the press. Um, they kept bringing up Amelia Earhart like as because they were trying to like uh, like ram home that connection and. It's it's just very interesting. But she got home. She was presented with the uh, Federal Avian Agen Agency's gold medal for exceptional service by Lyndon Johnson. But she did not win the Harmon Trophy, which is another um, one of those sort of things. That went to Joan Miriam Smith, who completed a flight nine twenty five days after Mock. So it's interesting that there's like a such a long period of time, twenty five years between Amelia Earhart's attempt. And then both of these attempts, uh, Jerry Mock and John Miriam Smith, that's not cr that's not too crazy because that happens a lot in history. You know, people happening to invent the th same thing at the same time or do the same thing at the same time. But it's it's still interesting. Why was uh, Miriam Smith awarded this uh, this other award, but Mock wasn't? That's that's. I mean, was I get maybe Smith was generally a more accomplished aviator. I don't know. Well, she got the Outstanding Aviatrix for nine, of 1964. Um, rather, and, well, the flight went off in 1963. Uh, let me see if i got a list of who won in 1963. In 1963, it went to... Now, let me just, let me just confirm this happened. Uh, yeah, 1964. No, she didn't take off in 1964. Yeah, she did take it off in 1964. She was preparing in 1963. I'm sorry. I mean, she, she was an awesome helicopter pilot. Okay, so that is about that. I don't know. That's interesting. Why did Joan Miriam Smith get one award? What year was Smith awarded said award? Joan Miriam Smith was awarded um, the Harmon Trophy for Outstanding Aviatrix in 1964. Okay, so it wouldn't have been posthumous because she died in 65. Uh, that's true. Um, in a plane crash at the age of 28. Lived by the sword, died by the sword, yeah. 
that's right. And she was a lot, certainly a lot younger. Uh, Geraldine, Jerry's Mark, uh, she was in her late 30s when she flew around the world, while Joan Mary Smith was like in her late 20s. Uh, I don't know if that's significant, but it's something. Yeah, and Mark only died like seven years ago, too. That's crazy. Yeah, she lived a long life. So it does kind of feel... I get they find out the, the gist from this that she... Well, she did an amazing thing, and it's, real, and it's cool, but if anything weird was going on, I think she just got caught up in something. But maybe... And, and, and she managed to get... If, if she was... If she was a, 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 an avatar, or if she knew what was going on, it changes things. But if she was just a mundane person that just happened to want to go around the world, well, mundane in terms of magic, not in terms of, like, um, her achievements. If she wasn't involved in the occult underground at all, I, it does seem like she just got caught up in some sort of beef, brief frenzy, probably, I think, almost certainly related to the flying woman. Uh, but she survived it, maybe unlike Joan Merriam Smith, and she lived a long life. And now the plane is hanging at the National Air and Space Museum in Virginia. You can see the spirit of Columbus, oh, okay. the plane. That's cool. Uh, I mean, it's seeming like the Columbus, Ohio has a lot of uh, interesting aviation stuff going on. Oh yeah. Well, you know more about like this is just like this is just an interesting person. This that's like that's another uh, flying um, flying ace, a flying person from Columbus, Rick and Barker and Jerry Mark. Is there anything else of note? that you want to bring here. Yeah, this just seems like a woman who may have been, and may have not been caught up in something ritualistic outside of her control and outside of her knowledge. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's, there's not any cabals involved at all. Sometimes it's just human achievement. But there's usually a cabal involved somewhere. Usually there's a witch or wizard. Yep. Or a demon. I mean, something's going on. But or ritual, I think, or some some risen. That's right. Now, there's one more thing about Columbus, Ohio, I want to talk about, and this is not so much a famous person, so I I I, I um I hesitated to talk about it, but they're in the, they're I, I I'm basing Go this off. off news articles. It's news articles. Uh, well, at first off, this does link in interesting with Rickenbacker and Mock. Um, in the terms of aviation, but not immediately, not immediately, obviously, because I, in my early researches about um, the mysteries and uh, madness of Columbus, Ohio, I did my usual sort of like, you know, looking for ghost stories, looking for urban legends, looking for weird rumors and things like that, right? And you go, you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of chaff with that wheat. Um, and there was one piece, there was one little nugget that I, I thought was a piece of wheat. I looked at it again, I'm like, no, this is chaff. But then I looked at it again, I'm like, wait a minute, there's some wheat in here. Maybe there's some gold. There was a weird house, and it was this big old uh, treehouse thing um, of interesting um, architecture. It was, it's built by, uh, it's called the Skilkin House because it was built by a local real estate guy named Stephen Skilkin uh, by the architect Bart Prince. It was designed in the uh, early 2000s. It's this uh, curvilinear glass and copper clad wooden residence that Steve Skilkin wanted to look beautiful from the air because he would fly into it uh, by helicopter because he had a helicopter. So. So there's all these like uh, lots of glass windows. It looks kind of like a, a like a fancy Ewok house, kind of. Like, it, it it it's interesting. I kind of like the design. 
It's unconventional. It's got lots of circles and things. It's a weird design, uh, and it looks quite beautiful by the lake it's near. And, I, and, and it's been sort of famous as people going by and like taking pictures of this house. But it, it, other than that, it initially wasn't that. I mean, that's just it's just a house. It's just a cool house that some local rich guy uh, contracted an architect to to build. And so there wasn't much to that. So I wasn't even going to talk about it. But this is just the lead-in. Uh, is there anything, any, any, any response to that? It's because... I mean, I'm looking at this house. It looks like a pretty sweet-looking house. But um, until you get into whatever fucked-up sacred geometry is going on with this place, um, yeah, it just looks like some mon some interesting modernist architecture. That's right. That's exactly what I thought it was. Uh, and it is, I believe. But Mr. Skilkin, and I so I looked up his, um, I looked up a couple of things. These aren't that important. Um, so I was like, who's this guy? I look on, um, on Twitter. I find his Twitter. And it's, it's beautiful because it's, it's, it, he had a couple of posts in like 2009, and it's all very boomer. And his first post is mysteriously... The ideal way to use Twitter. <laughs> He's got some pictures of his family and stuff from years ago up there, which is nice. But and some like, go, he went somewhere... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But his first post was, she got she got kicked out of 4-H for not keeping her calves together. Just apropos of nothing. Followed immediately by, oh, Yoga, right. why are you following me? What the fuck? <laughs> and then he didn't use it for two months, and he says, I'm social media adept, looking for helpful tips, anyone? And then didn't use it again for years. Uh, so it was a boomer, but it was just uh, mysterious enough to, worth, to, to worth, be worth mentioning. But what was really worth mentioning was the mysterious near plane crash suffered by this family. Now, you will see it because there's one a single detail which ties this into, which made me think this is an, it made it go from this is a kind of fucked up news story to this is a fucked up news story that makes me suspicious. And you'll know when, you, when we reach to it, when we reach it, this guy, Steve Skilkin, who... Um, is a lawyer, actually. Um, no, he's not. He's a, he's a real estate agent. Uh, he's a real estate agent um, who, through a company, Joseph and Skilkin, Joseph Skilkin and Co. Uh, what had happened is that he wanted to... He was going to fly to Las Vegas um, with his family for some event that they were having. And so he had decided to take his plane to get it repainted at Oxford Aviation. Now, Oxford Aviation is in Maine. And the reason Steve Skilkin had decided to go there to this particular place was because he liked their website. Now, the issue was that he went, he, the, they didn't get the plane ready in time. And so he went to Maine, like, I don't know if he was Maine, he went to Maine. He went to Maine to go in and, and instead of check it out, check out what the deal was. And he went in there and he found that the, the plane was just all over the place. Like they'd taken the plane apart and it was, it was all around the, uh, the workshop, you know, the plane workshop. So he's like, what the fuck was my plane? And they're like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We'll get it done tomorrow, right? So they, they put it back together, and the next day he goes on a flight, the mechanic, uh, to make sure it's flying well. And satisfied with the job, he pays the money uh, with a discount because, the, because apparently the paint job was poorly done, which was I believe was the point of going there in the first place. Um, so it makes me wonder why it was taken apart to begin with. But 
he 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 paid them with a significant discount. Actually, it might not, it must not have been a paint job because it was it was expensive. I think it was like an overhaul. But he flew the plane first back to Columbus, and the very next day he loaded up his wife and his two daughters, aged nine and twelve, and took off. And he headed towards Colorado Springs, which is where he was going to refuel. The Colorado Springs is just where my um, last night my um, playtesting of my back attacks uh, books, the Colonel's campaign occurred in Colorado Springs. So that made me go, okay. So they were coming into Colorado Springs and they were coming in at about 15,000 feet and the plane hit turbulence and it started flying around, bucking and, and, and just flying around like that, and like madness. They've got, um, they described it as being like a, in a clothes dryer on a tumble setting. So things were just flying everywhere. The toilet had exploded. There was blue fluid flying everywhere. Uh, parts of the cabin were just like falling apart. Tables were, it was just madness, right? And they thought they were, they were going to die. Now, the, the uh, air traffic controller who saw them come in, because Stephen Skilkin was a pilot with 19 years of experience, yet another very good pilot from Columbus, and he managed to land in a, under those conditions, despite not really being able to see, because the, the plane was spinning, and he could just see sky, trees, desert flying around, right? The flight controller described it as looking like a moth, flipping and flopping as it fell to the tarmac. And they all survived. Now, what makes this go from, it's already pretty fucked up, right? Already weird connections, is one thing that Stephen Skilkin remembered uh, was his 12-year-old daughter sitting next to him on the cockpit looking up and asking if they were going to die. And he says, I just said, be quiet, honey. And then it says in this article, his daughter spoke to him one more time during the harrowing descent, asking him to turn off the XM radio that was piping Kesha's Die Young into her headphones. Oh, Jesus <laughs> <laughs> that was the point made me go, oh, this is something, this is something, this is, that's, that's insane. But that's, that is the story of the Skilkins, the, la the last great navigator of uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, because from the description, and in, in the aftermath, they sued the company Oxford AD Aviation. Interestingly enough, I've noticed that, because we originally did that, uh, that um, this is about Oxford, Maine, when we originally did the uh, recording about Coatesville, Pennsylvania, it's because Coatesville was way up high on the list, but it depends on how you like uh, how I was searching things on SoundCloud because sometimes Coatesville wasn't coming up at all. Instead, I was getting Oxford, Pennsylvania, which is another odd connection. Um, but regardless, um, Oxford Aviation they got sued because holy shit, um, they attempted the owner attempted to clear bankruptcy and they got end up keep being kicked out of the airport where they they were at. And now, yeah, that is the general story of. Um, Steve Skilkin. Well, what, what, what are your thoughts on that, considering all the things? There's something fucking going on on the radios. Yeah, there is. There really is. Okay, so I guess the patterns we're seeing assert themselves here are, like, flight, fucked up shit involving radios, uh, fucked up shit involving, like, like fucking um, enforced generals and all that sort of shit. Big one is that history of literally being built from the bricks used in a burial mound. And, and, and the, uh, the icon war, or the icon, least powerful icons yeah. that we've, we've discovered. I mean, there is simply a lot. There's a lot in this town. Oh, we didn't even get to the lion. Holy shit. 
Was this about a fucking lion? Uh, all right, we can talk into it. Uh, we could cut this out if it's boring. Go uh, briefly, briefly. Briefly, we'll mention this. Um, 2004, there were reports of an African lion loose in the Columbus suburb of Gahana, uh, which is already an interesting name, which is described as near the Port Columbus International Airport, which is also interesting. Um, it was taken seriously enough that there were media and highway patrol helicopters roving around looking for it. One eyewitness described it as, you, you know how lions just stroll, that's how it was. We were all in the office and I said, there it is, with his tail up in the air, it was a lion. Now, they, all the lions owned in the nearby counties were accounted for, which does raise some questions, like how many fuck? people owned lions in the nearby counties. <laughs> they, they, so, didn't, they didn't know where this thing came from? This is the thing. Officials said that the Department of Agriculture said it was difficult to track because at the time there was no need for registration to own or transport exotic animals. All right. That explains a bit more, I guess. I guess even more interesting, and this ties into icons, even though people were describing it as like an actual lion, a real lion, and people were seeing it, but at the time... The local high school was called Lincoln High School, and their football team was known as the Golden Lions. And there was a rumor that the Gahana Lion, which was a, a, a statue, like a, a, a thing that the, um, a, uh, what's it, an effigy of the, yeah, not yeah. an effigy, but it's a, a symbol of the Lincoln High School's Golden Lions football team, had been stolen by the nearby Bexley High School. Now, Bexley is a Columbus suburb southwest of Gahana, and their football team is also called the Lions. Now, there's a, there was a rumor that at Bexley, um, they, the football team got, had, had gone, stolen the Gahana lion, and shoved it in the woods somewhere, just around the same time as these reports of an actual African lion wandering around started coming out. So this makes a question of, like, maybe it was some kind of magical prank that went wrong and turned into a real lion, or... It was a lion that happened to get out. Well, that that would be like the Coen Brothers version of this plot. If like they were stealing a lion and just accidentally, like a real lion got released nearby and they had to deal with it. But well, I don't know. Obvious thing is if they'd fucked up somehow and it was turning into a real lion. And that would, I think, I was thinking that this would be a very nice sort of low-level local objective of, oh yeah. god, we fucked up and now there's a real lion. How do we deal with a lion? We're footballers. And how do we do it without getting in trouble? Well, and then they obviously run into the, like, black and vile thing that's been sleeping beneath uh, Columbus, Ohio's airport for for centuries, if not millennia. I wonder if that was built... I did, wait, did you, did you mention where the mound was? The mound is in the middle of the street. It's on Mound Street. Uh, it's like, it's not near. It's not near the, It's not going to be near the airport. Let me just check because I'm assuming that the airport is going to be built a bit away from the central. It might not even be like a patriarchal thing. Someone might just really hate planes. The John Glenn Columbus International Airport. I didn't know that was the name. Um, it's not that far. Well, there you go. It's not that far away. Shit. It is. It would take you three hours and 17 minutes to walk from Mound Street to the airport. So definitely within the boundaries of the influence of an ancient mound building noble wizard turned into bricks. 
Well, like, yeah, all you motherfuckers keep saying, like, oh, look into Denver Airport. Investigate Denver Airport. Look into Columbus Airport, guys. Yeah, what's, what's going on? Well, that's the sort of thing. Like, whenever you get something like like Denver Airport or any kind of, like, one of those big sort of standard places associated with the paranormal or conspiracy law or anything, yeah. you always have to take it with a grain of salt because it can often be a big smokescreen. Because shit happens under people's noses in normal airports. You know, with the fact that they've put up a whole bunch of crazy art that looks Illuminati is just, it's a filter. It's to filter out these just, like, really surface-level ponies who only give a shit about what things look like and don't like to dig under the rock to get to the worms. You know what I mean? You, I mean, you've heard that, like... Denver Airport's leaning into it now, right? Like, they have all exactly. this, like... It's become a thing. Yeah, they have, like, all these conspiracy exhibits, you know, like, up throughout the airport. Advertisements to the airport are all, like, about conspiracy theory shit. Conspiracy's kitsch now. Yeah, exactly. Especially that kind of conspiracy. Yeah. That kind of conspiracy is, um, is safe and fun. It's not, it's not the kind of, like, QAnon stuff that's out there, which well, is... Well, yeah, that's is, the is, thing, because, like, that's, that's what Denver Airport's, like, really known for. It's, like, supposedly... Underneath that uh, airport is the, like, giant Amazon warehouse that the international pedophile rings use to, like... Exactly. Send their trafficking victims all over the world. And, you know, the airport doesn't include that in their advertisements. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's the, the horrible irony of David, I David Icke and his whole thing is that the lizard people are said to wear masks to make them human, but the lizard people are the mask for human evil. That Colonel Lasseter at the Lockwood Air Force Base, he is part of my original course. And I do almost identically what he suggested. I had to work on all these countries and right to get information on what rules and regulations, not only about the pilots with luggage and anything and everything, what the world was like, you know, so that you wouldn't be illegal. And that was hard work. And every night in the evening after dinner, I'd go downstairs to the basement and get up my charts, my plot where I'm going to go. And then at night, I'd go to bed and I'd dream it. And I'd wake up in the morning and say, well, I got to Bangkok. <laughs> 